Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. Today, we have a special surprise for all of you. Your typical hosts, Jess, myself, and Dylan, will not be conducting the interview in this episode. We have a special surprise host instead. If you've been following along with our podcast and organization for a while, you might remember that over the last six months, we've been running a Radical AI podcast internship with two amazing interns, Nikhil Darmaraj and Lena Wang. And both of these interns have been working hard over the last six months on several projects, including a series of roundtable dinner discussions about radical visions for technology, which was led by our intern Nikhil, and also in collaboration with the YX Foundation and an entire curriculum and set of resources on technology and power, which was led by our intern, Lena. We were so happy to see so many of you at the roundtable events that were led by Nikhil over the last few months, and be sure to stay tuned for more information about Lena's projects and curriculum in the coming months as they're launched. And speaking of the incredible work that these interns have done over the last few months, today is a bittersweet day because today marks the final day of the Rye 2021 Spring Internship. In order to mark the celebration, we are releasing our very first interview conducted by a guest host, one of our interns, Nikhil Darmaraj. So in this episode, Nikhil speaks to Tenmori Sundarajan and Sima Hari about technology, casteism, and surveillance. Tenmori is a Dalit rights artist, technologist, and theorist. Currently, Tenmori is the co-founder and executive director of Equality Labs. Sima is an engineer and an anti-caste and anti-colorism activist. And now we'll hand it over to Nikhil to take it from here. Hi all, welcome back to another episode of the Radical AI podcast. So excited to be joining you all today with two incredible guests on the show, Seema Hari and Tenmuri Sundarajan. And today we're going to be having a very important and fruitful conversation about caste, technology, and surveillance. So thank you so much and welcome Seema and Tenmuri. Um, so to go ahead and kick off this conversation, I wanted to start by asking you all, um, how can we conceptualize networks of caste and the production of technology, both in South Asia and in the South Asian diaspora? And maybe as we go through this conversation, also for our listeners who don't know, it would be great to sort of give a working definition and understanding of caste frameworks in general. So um, I think that this is such an interesting question because I think that, you know, this has been the heart of the work that Equality Labs has been working on for the last five years is really talking about the ways that we're seeing um, caste apartheid reorganize itself within the digital space. And when you think about the work that, you know, Professor Noble has done to really illuminate how structural bias is embedded in code and embedded in supply chains and embedded into workplaces, those are all of the ways that we're seeing caste be reorganized in digital realms. And, you know, this is something that, you know, I often talk about in terms of the theoretical work that we do around caste and tech bias as digital Brahmanism, where you're basically seeing the logics of caste 
um, you know, not only be transported, but really become the underpinning of so much of the digital infrastructure, both for South Asia and South Asian tech talent that might travel, um, um, you know, as part of these like global supply chains for all of these conglomerates. And the ways that we see caste show up are profound, you know, we are seeing it in terms of caste as hostile workplaces where we see um, caste oppressed workers seeing slurs and harassment and discrimination become normalized by, you know, in workplaces where even they know that this is a problem, they don't have HR properly trained to identify and arrest um, some of these conditions. We are also seeing this in terms of data stewardship. And when we think of, you know, uh, you know, a surveillance capitalism, I think that in the South Asian uh, context, this is a surveillance capitalism not emboldened just by white supremacy, but a white supremacist and Brahminical framework uh, around of Dalit and other caste depressed bodies and communities and geographies. Um, and I also think that we are seeing, um, you know, widespread disinformation networks, um, you know, that are primarily dominant caste networks who are emboldened by companies who are not implementing um, their own guidelines to protect and, you know, do their basic duty of care with our, um, with the, within the South Asian markets, but also quite critically, um, are, um, you know, allowing the normalization of casteist and religious slurs. So the ecosystem for bias and discrimination and the digitization of caste apartheid is in so many realms. And, and I think that you can't just speak to it about it being one element, one thing, it is the way that all systems of oppression work. You know, these, you know, techno utopian, um, outlooks that CEOs might pitch to venture capitalists is not the material reality of how these technologies get brutally implemented on hundreds of millions of users. And the bias that's baked in, you know, perpetuates and creates even more divides. And so our challenge as technologists who care about uh, caste and racial and gender equity is that we need to basically, you know, have an analysis that helps us understand what is broken about these systems and then work forward to kind of address, you know, the challenges from that place. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And then Mohi really did a good job at explaining, uh, you know, the macro effects of all of this. And I really think, for, for, you know, coming from a tech, uh, in coming from the tech industry, for me, the way that it scares me the most is how technology is really brutal in its analysis, right? So like, whenever you're making a decision as a human being, there's a lot of nuance involved. But as soon as you bring tech into those decisions, and like then Mohi described, when you have all these tech utopian CEOs, who are saying that, hey, we're going to use algorithms to solve everything. Well, algorithms based are based on one and zero decisions, like a string of one and zero decisions. And a lot of these things, uh, you know, are cannot be, you know, cannot be categorized as one and zero decisions. And because of that, what you see happening is that, you know, algorithms are actually increasing the divide, I would say, and increasing the, you know, uh, digital divide and, you know, the socioeconomic divide uh, and contributing in ways that are more harmful than, you know, when humans would make those decisions, I would argue. So for me, it's really just like thinking about, um, you know, when we're talking about straight from like the production of technology,
technology, like even, you know, uh, when you think about how people are hired now, that is based on algorithms, right? So you might, you know, uh, LinkedIn is running a machine learning algorithm to surface up candidates for you. But how do you know that that algorithm is not biased against, uh, you know, lower caste and caste oppressed people, because they might be the ones who never get hired eventually. So then, you know, like, uh, and they might not be the ones who are picked in these pools in the first place. So that's what scares me the most. And, you know, I, that, that influence, I don't know, I don't even know the answers to, like, how do you combat that? I feel like we need, we need you know, digital researchers and uh, people who are writing these algorithms to consider all these factors in their training algorithms, et cetera. And, uh, you know, like Tanmohi said, in, you know, there are so many technology workers that are coming from Indian institutes and coming here for their master's degrees as well. And, you know, because of the lack of caste protection and, you know, the lack of protection against uh, discrimination for caste oppressed folks, uh, we are kind of at the mercy of uh, of managers and professors, etc., uh, to protect us. And there's nothing else protecting us. And it prevents us from speaking up. Even if something happens, you are, you know, you, you're so afraid to speak up because there is no protection. And the second thing is that you... Um, risk losing your visa or your job which then sends you back you know to, to where you came from and you know you might have actually escaped a lot of like you know uh, negative experiences or you might be escaping something from your home country so there's a lot of things in play and i feel like algorithms and technology are actually emboldening people uh, uh, and emboldening the discrimination that's happening so we really need to look at it uh, from the uh, from the point of view of empowering the researchers and the engineers engineers who are making these algorithms uh, to be educated at the very least, you know, at the most, uh, like, you know, uh, basic level about what caste means and how it manifests in, you know, uh, in social groups. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for those incredibly illuminating answers. And um, the frameworks you both laid out make a ton of sense. Um, one thing I wanted to zone in on a little bit is, I know Tenmori, you mentioned the term caste apartheid. Um, would you be able to provide a definition or framework for those listeners who might not be familiar with caste apartheid as a concept? Sure. Um, and it's so funny because I think like sometimes when you're in the middle of, <laughs> of work that you've done for a long time, you forget that you have to um, take a bird's eye view, you know, um, particularly because I think that in the United States, though, we have such a great concentration of technical companies, you know, most folks actually lack basic competencies as to what CAST is. So um, just to give people, um, you know, a basic framework, you know, CAST is a system of oppression, um, analogous, but not the same as race. Um, uh, and, you know, I think like race, it is a social fiction. There is no biological foundation to caste, but you know the the premise of caste is that you know it was set up in uh, its origins in scripture, and the idea is that you know Brahmins who were the priests who um, you know developed this system basically carved up the rest of society such that as people, um, you know, you go down the pyramid, um, you get more and more um, polluted because you have less and less desirable jobs. So, you know, the, the top is the Brahmins who are the folks who focus on knowledge and spiritual practices and ritual and, you know, kind of hold the, the container around what is considered divine and pure and basically get to write the spiritual paradigm. Underneath that, you have the Kshatriyas who are the rulers. Um, and then you have the Vaishyas who are the merchants. And then you have a peasant uh, caste that's called um, 
the Shudras. And outside of that system is uh, a group of people that were considered so outcast that they were untouchable because they were spiritually defiling. And, you know, communities that were seen as untouchable faced punishing violence, extreme social exclusion, which is one of the reasons why we use the term caste apartheid, because essentially where you land on this system can determine who you marry, what job you'll have, what side you will live on, whether you have access to water and, you know, your proximity to violence and structural um, privileges or lack thereof. And for many that were untouchable, I mean, this was just a grueling sentencing violent experience you know, and, you know, I think part of that resistance was that people were like, we don't, we don't want to call ourselves untouchable. That's an epithet. So we use the term Dalit. And so, you know, within that little mini history lesson, you know, for anyone that isn't te the tech field and not someone who, you know, spends a lot of time in the social sciences, I want to really, you know, kind of emphasize, you don't need to be a history major to understand that violations of castes are civil rights violations. And, you know, all of the things that you would understand that are violations for protected classes of people like race and gender and sexual orientation are exactly exactly the same things that you're hearing from, from people who are caste depressed, you know, from slurs in the workplace, discrimination and harassment, uh, termination, um, you know, it's all very practical in terms of how you would look at this from a DEI framework. So, you know, I don't think that you need to, to know the, the entire history of the thousands of years of the caste system to know that it's a problem. There, we're seeing caste bias rampant across all aspects of tech, and it needs to be addressed meaningfully. Um, and it starts by adding caste as a protected category, which opens the door to data collection and opens the door for open and transparent conversations about uh, the kinds of discrimination that might be happening inside your company, um, as well as positive investments in terms of coaching and apprenticeships and recruitment, and um, uh, and and you know having you know cast oppressed employees not only feel safe about coming out in their workplaces, but actually being able to feel confident in going up their the you know the success pipeline of a particular company, and and this is a big deal because when you think about the amount of South Asian that work in the tech field, and that India is a market that most companies want to be basically conquer, you know, it's not just the moral thing to do, it's actually great business sense, because the growth of the Indian market is with the next billion users, who are all you know, majority caste depressed peoples because they are the last to get online. So it makes sense to have a diverse workspace that can actually speak to those users and really move them into places of confidence and, um, and you know, tooling and creating content that really speaks to this moment. So, you know, it's, it's a really important moment that, you know, I wanna encourage anyone within the tech field that's listening to this podcast to consider, you know, it's great business sense, you're on the right side of history, and more important, you'll be compliant with the law because caste discrimination is illegal. And the amount of caste discrimination that we're seeing is so wild, it would really do, you know, many of the companies that are listening to consider that they don't be the next Cisco. They're not the next company that's sued by a state for caste discrimination because they didn't take, you know, the bull by its horns and really um, work on it proactively as opposed to litigation.
Absolutely. And I think I really, I agree with everything that Moe said. I really want to underscore the point about, you know, reaching the next, uh, uh, you know, next frontier in India about uh, reaching all the users who are just starting to come online, etc. I think um, I see that a lot in the tech industry. And the biggest problem is that people are looking at it from the lens of, you know, people who are sitting in the Silicon Valley. So they're like, oh, we need to build an app for this. And I've been in so many situations where I've been able to explain to them that, you know, these are my people. Bill, they don't have feature, you know, they have feature phones, they don't have phones with Androids on them. I mean, now they do, but earlier they didn't even have that. But people were thinking about creating solutions that were centered around Android apps. So you need that person in the room to help you think about human-centered design, right? And you know, we have all these Silicon Valley technologists, UX researchers, UI researchers talking about human-centered design, but they don't have any decision makers who understand the nuance of the people on the ground and the people who will uh, you know, eventually use their apps. So uh, I really believe in increasing that representation. I think that representation is something really low. Uh, I, I don't even think we have done enough data collection to understand what the representation of caste oppressed groups is within the you know, huge technology force uh, in America that comes from India. But I think that number is really no, uh, low and it all, big, it all starts with acknowledging that this is a problem and then taking the steps that Tenmohi just laid out where you make caste a protected category and then people are comfortable about disclosing their caste and then providing positive uh, reinforcement and positive upliftment uh, opportunities for those people. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for those frameworks. Those are incredibly useful um, to keep in mind and um, really, really relevant to the current moment. Um, I know also that, you know, in this conversation, the Cisco case came up and um, I'm curious to, um, I guess, learn a little more about that. And then also think about, you know, the term you suggested that more digital Brahminism, how can we understand the digital Brahminism and how it manifests, not just in the culture of these workplaces, like with the Cisco case, but also in the products of technology themselves. So I think what's so important with the Cisco case is that, you know, as we're looking at, um, you know, landmarks in terms of American institutions, um, really being forced to confront how big of a problem CAST is. I think, you know, the state of California's Department of Fairness in um, Employment and Housing suing Cisco is a pretty big one. Because what um, the DFEH did essentially was investigate you know, the, the complainant who described pretty horrific experiences, which included, you know, aggressive kind of intimidation and harassment. And DFEH doesn't take it lightly, you know, a case like this, they're actually very clear before they investigate, um, you know, that they're not going to pursue every complaint. But the fact that they were able to do this really shows um, that they believe that the case has deep merit and they're going to pursue the litigation all the way to the end. And these cases, like, you know, will last many years. So it's not an insignificant amount of resources. And it's a bellwether, I think, in terms of American institutions understanding it is time that we addressed caste. And, you know, and I think that, you know, this is also a bellwether for the whole sector, because I think it was because of BIPOC scholars like Sophia Noble or the folks behind the Algorithmic Justice Project that we are having critical interventions in terms of the development of AI, in terms of the people who are stewards of our data under surveillance capitalism, because the communities that are being surveilled are not anywhere near the stewardship or design of these conversations. And I think with digital Brahminism, I mean, unfortunately, it's the same thing, you know, uh, 
uh, in terms of caste oppressed communities. And, and I think what's important is that we stop building tech without intention. And we need to start thinking about what are the blueprints for our liberation and then build technology that serves in that capacity. Because right now we have technology that basically serves venture capital pipelines that have no you know, human rights impact assessments. So when they get deployed in our markets and on our bodies and on our um, data, um, you know, they have immeasurable ways that they are causing harm. And there is no easy remedy because like once you kind to crack that egg there's nothing else people can't imagine you know it's too big to fail what are we supposed to do oh well you know and i think we have to do better than that particularly coming into this moment in covid we have a responsibility that what comes next doesn't create conditions that um, could harm us in the future and so um i think that's really what i'm most concerned about right now and to the second part of your question, Nikhil, I do see this manifesting in technological products as well. Uh, you know, the first example that I gave uh, was algorithms, uh, but there's also like features that you see online that you're like, why hasn't this been designed in a very Brahminical lens? You know, like, for example, on Indian marriage websites, you can filter by caste. You could even filter by skin color at a certain point in time. And then there was a lot of, you know, uh, organizing around that and they removed the skin color filter. But you're still, you know, allowing people to organize by these old uh, traditional ideas of caste-based endogamy, right? So, uh, you know, there's a lot of markers of this, even like in technological products themselves. And that's, I believe that's because the engineers who are building this are mostly from, you know, caste privileged backgrounds. And they think this is just a normal thing that they have to do under the name of tradition. And right. And so they haven't really looked at it from any other lens whatsoever. So it's not, you know, you know, I think that it goes beyond just workplace dynamics. It's in the products all around us. For example, on Instagram too, um, there was an account called Buffalo Intellectual who did an analysis of how many of, you know, uh, caste uh, activists are verified. Like none of us get verified because, you know, uh, Instagram's people who decide the verification, you know, uh, who have the decision-making capability of who gets verified, they are probably from a predominantly caste privileged lens. So they don't believe that, you know, these people need to get verified or whatever that algorithm is, you know, uh, deciding at the end. So I see this manifesting a lot in technological products themselves. And, uh, you know, I feel like there is no person in the room uh, who is uh, capable of making these decisions. And that's why we are seeing all of this. But like then Moe said, we have to build that line really stuck with me. Actually, we have to build for our, you know, bright future. So we build backwards from that, decide like what we want to see in the future for our liberation and then build backwards from that. Instead of having these like really dated products that we fix, you know, keep on fixing, but it never really gets there. So um, yeah, that th thank you then Moe for that line that will stick with me for a while. And I, and I do think it's important that we need to be ambitious for what we want. I honestly, I am not interested in creating a research complex that's all about let's fix shitty tech, you know, and, you know, and, you know, research at our own cost while our people are dying, because that's literally what's happening. Our people are dying while this crap is happening. Like, if you just think about the violence that disinformation networks have done in um, India, not just South Asia, in India alone, think about the chaos. You know, I was just talking to a Muslim friend who lost 30 members of her family to COVID, 30 members. And the death started 
you know, um, early in the pandemic, because if you remember, there was disinformation that was being pushed called Corona Jihad um, that was targeting Indian Muslims. And as a result, throughout the entire pandemic, Indian Muslims were denied medical care from multiple institutions. This is fucking criminal. And, you know, the bananas thing is, is like when you take a company like Facebook, they are so negligent, absolutely unequal, you know, un, you know, they are just negligent, you know, from the fact that they had to fire one of their top brasses who quote unquote resigned, but we all know what it was because of her political biases, but also that they have said that they are afraid to remove groups that are extremist in nature because they are afraid of what would happen. Um, to their staff and their offices. So what they're essentially saying is that it's unsafe for us to moderate and maintain the guidelines. And oh, well, you know, to basically hundreds of millions of Indian users. But I would ask the question, if you find it unsafe to even, you know, um, you know, moderate in the country, then what business do you to have even being in the country doing business in the first place? And we're not asking these questions because again of the colonial and Brahminical um, dynamics at play with these companies, you know, the fact that you have a colonial administrator in Silicon Valley that works with, you know, dominant caste people to basically allow hate speech to become normalized, disinformation to run rampant, you know, call calls for violence to occur and without consequences, that is the danger of digital Brahmanism. And I want to make very clear, having an analysis around Brahmanism isn't about targeting one caste. It's about the system that creates Apartheid. And that is so really critical because, you know, when you think about talking about anti-Blackness, you know, the, 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 the consequences of race are held on Black and Brown bodies and Indigenous bodies. But there was a very clear ideology that set up white folks and created this social fiction. So too with Brahmanism. And we can't shy away from using the term Brahmanism familiar with it because it is the tool for understanding the supremacist system. So I would just like really want to emphasize how critical it is for us to use the right terminology because when we can accurately diagnose the problem, we can find the best medicine. But when we're kind of in the margins, like hunting for the right terms, we're just clawing around trauma and clawing around the consequences without accuracy to be able to design for it. And there are many, many tools that we can use right now to design for this, but only if we're being really conscious about our next steps. Yeah, thank you so much for those incredible answers. Um, and I think that uh, what you all have described with digital Brahminism is such an important framework to keep in mind. And um, it sort of leads me into uh, a next question, which is I'm curious about how we can understand digital Brahminism in a longer history, um, where Brahminical appropriation of knowledge has been like a very important focal point of anti-caste scholarship. How do we understand digital Brahminism and situate it in that history? Well, I mean, for me, because again, this is like a body of work that I've been developing. And so, um, you know, I think that if you go back to Jyoti Bhai Phule's book, um, on slavery, 
he that is like one of the kind of polemical texts that really outlines the crimes of Brahmanisms and the ways that it has enslaved the caste oppressed masses. So when you start with that articulation of Brahmanism that actually goes very deeply into the bureaucratic mechanisms of um, caste and how um, you know, the top caste kind of manipulate like the other caste um, professions in order to maintain their power and the ways that they connect up with the English, there is a direct through line um, from Fule to Ambedkar to Ayodidas to Periyar um, to current thinking in terms of caste in its digital forms, which I think are actually very crucial for us to be able to route ourselves in because we do have language, we do have foundation and the ideological understanding of the system. What we need to do is frame it in the context of how do we understand bias to work in tech? And it happens in terms of the places where people get developed as technologists. So the IITs, it happens in the context of workplaces and hostile workplaces. It happens in terms of the iteration of the priorities of a market or the design of a particular product. You know, it happens in terms of um, who defines a da data set and who is a carceral body to be framed within those contexts, right? Um, and then I also think it has to do with um, the way data is controlled and the way that data is weaponized and who gets to make the parameters of that from a stewardship perspective. So those are all really key places where we will see um, opportunities for there to be research and dialogue and discourse. But this moment around digital Brahmanism is so severe because of all of the consequences that are coming out of it right now. Yeah, and for me, it's also about like, you know, the people who are in positions of power, who are, you know, releasing the information of main, you know, kind of stewards of curation of what gets out to the general public are the ones who, you know, are from caste privileged backgrounds. So you will see this in like, not just tech, but also in storytelling, et cetera, where the decision makers who get to tell the stories are from caste privileged backgrounds. So, you know, the knowledge that they are willing to disclose is the one that protects them as well. So you'll see this a lot when like, you know, when, you know, filmmakers are making movies about, you know, any anti-caste movement, they are referencing either Gandhi or some other Brahminical leader and not Ambedkar who was this, you know, the champion uh, uh, for our civil rights, right? So you see that same thing, I think even in research uh, and, you know, everywhere else where you might have junior researchers who are contributing to papers, but ultimately the people who are releasing the information and the people who are doing the research are majority, you know, in majority from caste privileged backgrounds and the same thing happens with tech as well so you know you might you can fight an internal battle to make an algorithm better but ultimately it's the you know the head of facebook who's going to make a decision about how algorithms are controlled in india and how you know they can make really easy tools for the it cells to use for the governments to use but not easy tools for human beings to report disinformation and human beings to report against you know uh, uh harassment and bullying because uh, you know how easy is it for you know instagram to put uh, uh, or facebook to put um, another category in like hey i'm getting bullied and this person is using this caste slur against me or you know uh, any of those kind of tools in place but they don't do it because the decision makers are predominantly from these caste privileged backgrounds and they don't want this to come to the forefront so yeah i i just wanted to add that as well one thing that also you know a lot of the scholarship that you all have been referencing um regarding highlighting structural bias and structural violence as it pertains to technology has also been around surveillance. And so 
Um, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on making sense of caste as a social variable when we are studying and understanding surveillance, particularly given the moment right now in India with the rise of Hindu fascism. So I think that, you know, one of the things I think that's so important for people to know is that Dalits and caste oppressed peoples are one of the most carceralized um, communities in the global context and that we have faced carcerality um, in every aspect of our lives and it gets translated into structures of policing and um, surveillance very easily. Um, and, you know, I'm really remembering like, you know, uh, the, you know, and for folks that don't even, you know, know, like last year, you know, before the pandemic hit, you know, India was in a genocidal crisis where they were about to, um, you know, create one of the largest networks of, you know, um, detention camps to target, you know, Muslims and caste oppressed peoples. And there's an entire data infrastructure that would be part of that. Um, so at a very real material level, tech would be weaponized by people who would use these data sets to find people, denaturalize them and put them into jail and begin the process of what it means to really enact genocide. And, and I think this is like a very critical thing to look at because it's both about the tech that is used to carceralize, you know, whether it's the use of like CCTV and other kinds of um, uh, um, and monitoring that happens, but also there were several instances last year in wide scale protests where the Indian government was identifying people um, through facial recognition and was open about doing that. And, um, and I also think that we are seeing, you know, a large scale um, collaboration of American platforms with a genocidal administration. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? You know, when you think about IBM and its role in the Holocaust, you know, there should be a response from American corporations about, you know, never again. So what are the ethics of operating in a genocidal context and what level of transparency and oversight is required so that there isn't a harm that is done to vulnerable human rights defenders? And this is super important because just a couple months ago, Google participated with um, you know the Delhi Central Police to remand you know a young activist who had shared a toolkit about you know the farmers protests, which was a, a set of protests related to Punjabi farmers who um, were you know striking against like what they viewed as very unjust, and they are very unjust um, revisions to farmers' law. And the response was draconian, and you know, so too was the use of surveillance, where they basically asked Google to divulge the IP addresses of everyone that you know opened up this Google Doc, and then that gave um, the Delhi police like a list of people to come in and remand, which means to um, kidnap them in the middle of the night, not let their parents know, not give them legal support, and to put them into conversation with the police. Why did Google do that? Remember when Google was like, do no evil? This seems like the opposite of like, let's absolutely not just collaborate, but be complicit with evil straight up. You know, and you can't tell me that they don't know what's going on because the head of Alphabet is Sundar Pinchay. He's a Tamil Brahmin from fucking India. He knows exactly what's happening. So how is it on his watch, his company is throwing under the bus young environmental and caste oppressed and religious oppressed activists like this? Where's their response to that? you know, and it's nothing. 
And I think that's where we have to look at, you know, black and brown bodies are excellent for markets, but are really bad for human rights for these companies. So we need to really like hold them accountable for what's happening because, you know, we don't, we don't want reparations at the end of this. We need investments that address this problem now and investments in an ambitious enough level for us to really ask for more, demand for more, and, um, and really start to be architects of the future as opposed to like repairmen for their shitty systems, you know, because what's working, right, what, what's happening right now is absolutely not working. And also building off of a lot of that um, anti-surveillance work that you mentioned as so critical to the anti-caste struggle, um, I'm very curious to also learn a little bit more about how this sort of anti-caste vision for technology can align itself with and stand in solidarity with many of the other um, justice-oriented visions of technology offered by scholars like Safia Noble, like the Algorithmic Justice League, those projects which work to address anti-Blackness or other forms of systemic violence in technology. How and where does anti-casteist technology fit in that puzzle of solidarity? There is a really powerful group of Black and Dalit scholars that are doing collaboration around these issues. And I think we need to have more engagements um, and a development of an entire new generation of cast thinkers who are opening the space of what this means. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot of that in the next couple of months. Like I, you know, I know that we'll be writing um, some pieces around digital Brahminism to try to help set a frame and a context around this. But um, it's going to be, you know, this is this is the frontier we have to cross in order to really build out what we need for our people, you know. I totally agree. I think, uh, you know, um, like Tanmoy put it, it's, it's an act of solidarity across all of these justice movements. And I think that in my experience, at least, it's been really easy for me to explain explain to people what our experiences are and, you know, how this should be a protected category. It's only been uh, challenging when I, uh, when I have to talk to caste privileged people, but across, you know, countries and across uh, companies that I've worked at, it's actually been to explain the struggle to uh, you know any ordinary human being, it's it's been uh, it's not been that hard because they can see that in action in many other walks of their life, uh, and like like that Mori said, you know uh, the protection is just the same protection that we offer for you know uh, gender and race and all these other constructs. So I do see that this uh, you know all the anti-casteist uh, you know uh, struggles for justice are very have a common thread across other justice movements as well, and I think that you know when we are talking about equity and when we are talking about DEI. I don't think any conversation around that would be complete without thinking about anti-casteism. Um, and I, you know, any company that's working in technology as well, because India is such a big part of the technology story of any company. Um, I don't think uh, they can talk about equity in a holistic sense without really incorporating these discussions in. And, you know, like we said, not just in terms of uh, increasing the representation in the workforce, but also looking at it from the angle of data collection and surveillance and also so product decisions that they make and design decisions that they make. So yeah, I, uh, I completely agree with Tenmoy. As we look forward also to the future, um, I wanted to sort of then uh, shift gears and ask in what ways, if any, uh, can technology be a liberating force for Dalit and other caste oppressed communities in the struggle against casteism and the fight for liberation? And more specifically, how does that inform and motivate the work that you both do as activists, storytellers, technologists? 
Well, I think that technology is a tool, right? Technology is not the, the platform for liberation. It's a tool towards our liberation. And I think that's significant because that level of detachment lets us make some critical decisions for when do we need tech to be free and when is tech an inhibitor to be free. And, um, and I think that some of what we need to start being more critical about is why are we acting as these corporate surveilled platforms are democratic engagements, particularly when we're mobilizing and doing so much social media in these surveilled places that are collaborating with people who are our oppressors. We have to think about how we can ask and demand more for what we need for our autonomy and freedom. So I think thinking about, you know, creating a next generation of Dalit um, uh, entrepreneurs who can start to build a liberation tech ecosystem that looks at workers' rights, that looks at, you know, a vision for what um, caste equity could look like at all the different ways that we're seeing those failures in big tech, I think could be very powerful. And um, because our community does have tech talent, our community does have people who are programmers and that are entering you know, um, the workforces of these bigger entities that are just terrible. But imagine if like we were able to create like an angel fund of, for Dalit entrepreneurs to be able to build around equitable lines. And so I think that is something I think that's super important to look at. And, um, and I also think it's important to document and document the harm and also observe and research what's happening. And so we need stakeholders in all of the pipelines, you know, that help create equitable tech, whether it's researchers, developers, you know, UX designers, content creators, we need to step forward into this digital realm and counter digital Brahmanism with an age of Embedkar, where we are able to take an Embedkarite vision into the next century. And that is, um, you know, a challenge Dalit and caste oppressed peoples are more than up to. And it's very critical for us to really take this direction meaningfully um, as far as we can, because this is how we would take Ambedkar's caravan for justice forward is um, by lifting, you know, his analysis um, into these spaces that he could only have imagined, you know, and for folks that are just hearing Ambedkar for the first time, he is a Dalit civil rights leader that was the architect of the Indian constitution and you know, trailblazed desegre desegregation of caste apartheid across many different Indian institutions and was a legendary thinker and um, polymath. You know, And I feel like if he was alive today, he would have also found a way to become a developer You know, just because of the kind of you know, thinker and genius that he was. But I think that he doesn't have to be alive today because we're all children of Ambedkar who are fighters for caste abolition. And so I think we need to take that inspiration and move into these realms and understand that technology is never absence of bias, that it's actually formed of bias out of political economies that have bias and that create profit that are inherently about, you know, um, biased. And so if we can then start to really unpack that, understand these contexts, we can build around it. We can actually create our own path to the future.
Wow. Uh, Tenmohi just gave me goosebumps uh, like she usually does. Uh, but every everything she said. But I also wanted to add that one little thing that has helped me uh, and that technology has helped me with uh, in in towards my like path to liberation is just helping me be connected with all of these people around the world. Um, and like, you know, finding my voice, voice in that moment, finding people to learn from, uh, finding activists, technologists, entrepreneurs, filmmakers, everybody. And, you know, uh, in a way that I didn't feel seen before and I didn't wasn't able to find those people and find that community. Um, I have found that right now. And I think that's something that technology as a tool has helped us with. And, uh, you know, with everything that Tenmori said, you know, as you know, as we get funding, as we come together around Ambedkar's vision. Um, I truly see, like, I really have an optimistic outlook towards this. I truly feel, feel like we can build an equitable uh, future, but it begins with envisioning that and then working backwards from it to build it, um, you know, with all of the resources that we have at hand. Absolutely. And I echo your words, Seema. The, the insights you shared, Tenmori, were truly amazing and really inspiring and give us a lot of hope for the future. Um, and as we sort of close out this incredible conversation, I wanted to just sort of ask about your both of your individual journeys through technology in your life and research and the work that you do as, as you see it uh, pertaining to these conversations. And with that, um, also would love to ask places for listeners to engage more with your work, um, Twitter handles, emails, websites, whatever you think would be best to share with our listenership today. Um, I think that, you know, for folks who want to kind of track, like, you know, conversations related to cast and tech, like definitely encourage them to, you know, check out Equality Labs' Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, because we'll often put stuff there. Um, I also really recommend um, uh, that folks um, track what's going on with um, the Cisco case. And so to kind of follow up on updates related to that. Also, Alphabet Workers Union just released a statement related to cast and tech. And so they will also from time to time put stuff out there. So there's a lot of ways to keep connected. And I think that following our socials is like a really good way to kind of push out the resources and get connected, you know, wherever possible. Yeah, I second that. Follow Equality Labs, um, and then uh, for me, I also I'm I'm tracking all the things that are happening in India as well. So, internetfreedom.in uh, tracks a lot of the surveillance issues that are happening with India and how uh, big tech is helping um, um, the Indian fascist government. So those are two things that I look at usually. Fantastic, and we'll include all those links in the show notes as well. Thank you all so much for coming on the show. I think that today we really had an incredible conversation and uh, I'm leaving this conversation feeling uh, both troubled and inspired by all that you shared. And I'm so sure that all our listeners today feel the same way. So thank you both so much for all your work and your time today. We want to thank Denmori and Seema again for joining us today for this really wonderful conversation. And Nikhil, a big congratulations to you for finishing out this internship. Thank you so much, Jess. It was a really great experience to be an intern with the podcast this semester. We really enjoyed having you around. And also, you originally approached Dylan and I about doing an interview on this topic a few months ago. So I'm wondering, what was it that drew you to this conversation? And what does this topic mean to you? Yeah. Um, I think with my own background being South Asian from a Brahmin Savarna family in Silicon Valley and having benefited a lot from these structures of complicity and violence myself, um, 
I have really um, been interested in thinking about caste and technology from the perspective of how we can organize um, upper caste Indian communities and also other communities um, um, to be allies while centering Dalit feminist leadership. And so that uh, sort of idea then to sort of make an episode about caste and technology really appealed to me to get these conversations going and to amplify the incredible voices and insights of people like Tenmuri and Seema. And so I was really grateful to have this conversation and to be able to platform and center this really important discussion. Well, thank you, Nikhil. And we're really grateful for you for facilitating this important conversation. And also thank you for the amazing work you've done with us over the past six months. Well, that wraps up this episode and also the Radical AI internship. For more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. We'll be taking a little bit of a break from our regularly scheduled episodes this summer, so you can catch our new Measure Mentality episodes every month, and you can expect our regular programming to come back around August. But until then, join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always, stay radical. Radical.